Blessed are the merciful, hearts of grace, who stand amid a broken world's embrace. With tender eyes that see beyond the veil, they seek compassion where all else may fail. In somber tones, they lift the fallen's head and ease the burdens of the sorrow fed. For in their souls, a well of kindness lies, a refuge for the wounded and the wise. Amid the ruins of a shattered dream, they weave a tapestry of love's own theme. With gentle hands, they mend the broken hearts and soothe the scars of life's relentless darts. The tears they shed are born of empathy, a river flowing through humanity. For each soul they meet, a part of self, in unity, they find the world's true wealth. They cast no stones, no judgments to be hurled, but offer understanding to the world. With arms outstretched, they bridge the great divide and walk alongside those on pain's rough ride. Blessed are they who show a mercy's flame when vengeance seeks to brand another's name. Their voices whisper hope where hatred roars, their touch a balm on wounds of ancient wars. In silence they can hear the voiceless plea, the muted cries for love and liberty. With selfless hearts they give, they heal, they mend. In every act they find a sacred blend. Yet in the darkness shadows mark their trail, for mercy's path can lead to hearts impaled. With heavy hearts they bear the weight of pain, and in their solitude they still remain. So let us honor those with hearts so kind, the merciful, whose spirits intertwine, in somber tone will echo their decree, for in their mercy we can all be free. Amen, amen. Thanks to Jason Davis and for Maribel Rivera for producing those videos yet again. We're just so thankful for the beauty that those encapsulate in this Beatitude series. There are a few poignant moments in life where you desperately cry out for mercy. I remember in 2020 watching helplessly the race riots that engulfed our country while on lockdown from COVID. I pled for national mercy and for mercy for all minority communities in our country. In 2015, I pled for vocational mercy as I was in the wrong professional career, going back briefly to the corporate world, leaving pastoral work for a variety of reasons, and God kept telling me I was in the wrong spot, but I could never figure out where the right spot was. I remember in 2010, I begged for mercy as I watched my son James, born as a premature baby, two pounds, three ounces at 27 weeks, just about taller than me. But at that moment, I pled and begged for mercy for him. And in 2003, I remember pleading with God for my own health as I was sick in the hospital for weeks, unknowing what was going on, and there's just a miraculous recovery. See, there are large moments where we can remember moments where we need mercy and where we can see that the world is seeking mercy. But friends, there's also a dull drone and the concept of daily, moment-by-moment mercy to get through each day. Amen? A nag on one's conscience that mercy is akin to water or to air or even caffeine on Monday morning. We all need mercy daily, moment by moment. 
And these profound moments spaced out at times are sometimes rapid and affect us all and sometimes uniquely pull on our souls just as unique as they are. For many, 2020 or vocational distress or even familiar or physical distress has not been experienced or understood or at least felt or sensed, and maybe it's just differently than I do. While you cannot understand how I feel, the need for mercy may be the most understood human emotional experience that we can then understand one another. To illustrate, look at this image on the screen. (laughs) Which team did she root for yesterday? (laughs) Yeah, some of you are unsure. Some of you are like, what, what, what? There was a game yesterday? Yeah, yeah. There was a mercy for this team of this city yesterday as that field goal just went ever so slightly askew, yes? And you also can understand that this Clemson fan, oh, bless her soul. We understand there are moments in these games we play where you understand this feeling better than anyone else can because your team also missed a field goal, maybe. I remember as a college student, I was a vocal major student in the University of Nebraska, go Big Red. And I just have to say it every time I say it, okay? It's, 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 it's a tick, okay? It's not anything you didn't see. Uh, so at University of Nebraska, go Big Red. And we were, I was singing this song called Carl Mio Ben uh, with my voice teacher. And it's a beautiful love song. And I was trying to sing it the best I can. Carl Mio Ben. And he stops the piano and just slams it. And he goes, you've never been in love. And I'm a, I'm a 19-year-old kid. I'm like, well, thanks, Bill. I appreciate that. But he just, he just knew I couldn't sing the song correctly because I had truly never been in love. Now I sing it amazingly. <laughs> but there's this sense with these emotions of love, but specifically mercy, that we understand one another so much better when we can collaboratively feel it together. See, there's a sense that mercy will be very individualized in this message, and it should be. But mercy is something that we all must understand if we want to be blessed. If we want to understand God and be near God, we must hear this beatitude on the screens today. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Where do you need mercy? During the sermon, I want you to consider what mercy is needed and take that little slip of paper on your seats and fill out what you may need mercy for, where you may need mercy in, a relationship, a word, a person's name, a place, a title that you bear. I may need mercy as a father or as a mother. These are just be one or two words. It's confidential. And please use those slips of paper. And if you've already ruined yours somehow, unknowingly, there's several slips by the candles in front of you. Come up and grab one. We want to understand and maybe wait throughout this message to hear where I maybe need mercy I didn't realize I needed. But for those online, we specifically call out that you can use those prayer requests and Pastor Lori's online with you right now. And we'd love to hear from you, though this series and this message specifically is a little less interactive online. We're grateful that you're joining us on that platform here this morning. See, friends, mercy is not just forgiveness, where it's reactionary to some fault that someone's given to me, but also mercy can be on the offensive side. Or if I see someone struggling, I can bring mercy to them and therefore be blessed. 
The beatitude on his face is pretty straightforward and simple in its logic, but for they will be blessed, those who will find mercy. We see that the circular in nature compared to the other beatitudes. The other beatitudes answer a need. See, the weeks before, feet, if you're, if you're hungry for righteousness, you're going to be what? You're going to be filled. Those who are poor in spirit, they're going to get a kingdom. And it's almost opposite. Here, it's very awkward for my brain. If I show mercy, if I bring mercy, I will receive mercy. It's almost circular in logic. It's not that we must be merciful to have God act in mercy. No, 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 no. Instead, the context of blessing for forgiveness and for mercy allows access to God and an understanding of God's forgiveness. If we are merciful, we can conceive of the mercy that our God abundantly gives. I use this analogy to help illustrate this in, in a way, but as in the Martin family, I've taken over the cooking responsibilities. Yeah, amen. Pray for my children. The idea of this is, is that we have different responsibilities that my wife and I do, and it was my time to take that mantle away, and I have done so good for 40-some-odd years of not being the primary cook in my life at all. For the first 18, it was my parents, and then it was this beautiful person called Taco Bell. And then I met Carissa, and it, the rest is history. I mean, she is an amazing cook. But as I found, I don't understand what it means to be a cook and to be an eater of food until I start cooking the food. Does that make sense? That, that I don't understand what the different ingredients do to a dish until I both eat it and I also create it. We can't understand mercy and the mercy that God has for us unless we share it with one another first. Unless we both give and receive it fully. Mercy is more than this, though. As my examples to the start of the message suggest, feeling mercy is multifaceted. It's physical. There's a physicality to be given mercy in your life. There's also an emotional side, which we'll feel this morning. The spiritual is, is kind of obvious, but there can be mercy in my identity and how I view myself. Vocationally, as I gave the example before, but also we can see mercy in a group of people. Friends, as a United States citizen, I've felt mercy many times in my lifetime. But also you can have mercy in your family. And the roles in which you have, the titles in which you bear, there can be a familial mercy. And all of these are connected when you're dealing with the full concept of what mercy is. There are times where I must show mercy to forgive others and forgive them. See, there are times where I must give compassion to those that are in moments of needing mercy and there are moments where mercy needs to be shown to myself. And so on that little slip of paper, I may be needing to write me. Tribes and teams, parties and allegiances, the way in which I unite myself unhealthily or unknowingly unhealthily to groups may need corporate mercy. Maybe you need to write down one of those groups you've joined and didn't realize how ungodly it truly was. Well, this sounds odd to some of us. Some of us need me to have mercy in their relationship to God. That the perception of God in a season of my life means I need to write down, God, please show me mercy in our relationship because somehow I've messed it all up. But greater than any analogy I can give, Jesus masterfully shows us in Matthew 
which I love that Matthew uses his own gospel to illustrate these Beatitudes in such profound ways. Matthew 18, it's a story that many of us know very well, and some of us who are just coming into this, it's gonna be profound, okay? So buckle your seatbelts in, let's go. Chapter 18, verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. There's some translations that say 70 times seven. And I don't know what that math is, but somebody can tell me. I'm just kidding. I know that math. I know that math. 500. <laughs> Culturally, three to four times asking for forgiveness was the, the, the gold standard. The Pharisees and the Sadducees said, if you, if you sin against your brother or sister, for, ask for forgiveness three and four times, okay? We have the old adage, if you fool me once, shame on who? And if you fool me twice, shame on? Yeah, you all got it wrong. It's Okay. You sound like zombies right now. <laughs> Fool me once, shame on who? You. Fool me twice, shame on who? You. Good job, zombies. Culturally, three to four times is amazing, but Peter's trying to raise the bar. He's trying to show off because that's what Peter does in every single one of these stories with Jesus, right? Look at me, Jesus, seven times. And that's how his voice sounds. But Jesus' response is not about the number. Not seven times seven or 70 times seven. It's about forgiveness of fellow members in his community of little ones cannot be limited to frequency or quantity. We must share mercy like a little child does. And it's amazing that early in that chapter, Jesus does the passage about the little children. And he gives this image of this forgiveness and this mercy that just has no limit to realize that all have been forgiven more than they can ever forgive. And he continues in telling this story. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle his accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Biblically, in kind of understanding this amount of gold, which all of us have, David's temple costs 3,000 bags of gold. Okay, This person takes out how much? 10,000. Now, there's inflation in the ancient economy, and it's not quite apples to apples, but let's hang with me. Estimates of contemporary money, which is kind of ridiculous, but also illustrative. The minimum that I could find in understanding how much this is today is $200 million. Well, I know, that's, I have that too. But due to inflation, it could be $1 to $7 billion. Yeah, I have that too. The debt therefore will never be paid off. So the shocking part comes in this next verses where always in these parables, Jesus just changes everything on his head. Verse 25, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all he had paid been sold to repay the debt. And this is a common response. This thing called debtor's prison, where if you have a debt you can't pay, instead of trying to pay it back in bankruptcy in his day, just throw him in prison. More on that in a moment. At verse 26, at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. In slavery terms, the top price for a slave in putting him into debtor's prison was one bag of gold. So you do the calculation, how many bags do you take out? And he's going to get one bag. The, the king knows he's not getting a return on this investment. He's writing this off to the Roman IRS, right? He's not even getting a tiny bit back. The fact that the loan was ever given was absurd to the listeners of this. Of those disciples, they'd be like, 
Why would the king give him this much money? But even more absurd is the fact that the debt now is canceled. This, this servant has no way to pay it back, not even hope. My question to us is, what if this parable ends in verse 27? What if it ends right here? How many of us treat God that way? That God is some sort of mercy solve that I can come on Sunday mornings, feel it, and then I get to go through my week Monday through Saturday and don't have to worry about my soul's place. That it's all about God and me and nobody else. Except the people I like, I'll agree with them and help them out. Or the people who vote like me or look like me or act like me or talk like me. That's about me and God. And that's, how, that's where the mercy ends. But we keep going. Maybe I need to accept the unbelievable forgiveness of God to whoever and however I come today. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. This is not an insignificant amount. It's a common wage for a day laborer over about 100 days wages. The man grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay me back what you owe me, he demanded. His servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. And I will pay it back verbatim what he had just said to the king. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went to their master telling everything that had happened. When we encounter unearned mercy, our response often is judgment, gossip, denial. Often there's a lack of mercy to others because we feel unworthy of what we maybe have received. Maybe you need to write on that slip of paper someone who needs mercy in your relational life. Verse 32. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had to you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Many people debate if Jesus really did say that verse 35. It sounds pretty, pretty cruel, Jesus. Pretty, that hurts a little bit. That hurts me. I think it is illustrative and profound to look at this verse and say, this is the relationship that I have, not just with God, but I have with every single person around me, not only in this room, but the people who I detest throughout my week and throughout my life. I will say, as a sadly needed asterisk, as this parable can be used in heinous ways by unhealthy churches in relation to money. Jesus uses finance to teach this lesson, but this is not what this is all about. It's not about finance. It's about receiving and exercising mercy. And for some of us on our pieces of paper, it does involve a concept of money. Mercy releases. It does not invalidate justice. It frees the person suffering from it. Some of us are carrying around debts and grievances that are only hurting ourselves. We pretend we are invincible to the hurts that others have done to us. We seek the quick path towards healing, hoping that the five steps might help. Or saying the right things or taking the two days off of work reading a few self-help books. But we hang on to that hurt for days, weeks, months, years, even decades to have it gain interest on the toll 
on the person who hurt me. Because we own it, we hold on to that pain. We know that hurt, that physical, emotional, and spiritual is deeper than that. When we hold on to our debts, we can accept the mercy that God gives us. This beatitude is so badly needed for churches and for individuals who live in a society where people insist on standing on their rights and division marks both in our churches, but also in our families and society as a whole. Your rights are important, don't get me wrong. And don't think that I must continue harmful relationships by what I'm saying. But friends, this parable and this beatitude truly rock our mindsets of the present day. But also Jesus' day as well. This teaching of this parable is counterintuitive, but is possibly the most forceful expression of how Christians should live. Christian living, rather insisting on my rights, should be a continual dispensing of mercy and forgiveness, mirroring God's own character and treatment of God's own people. Unfortunately, forgiveness and mercy are often least at home in our churches, and our society views these things as weaknesses. Friends, if mercy does not affect change, it is not truly experienced. Our community must be radically defined by forgiveness instead of judgment. In past seasons, it was the norm to draw lines in the sand to indicate loyalty. But I tell you today, to embracing with mercy across divisions of people wholly indicates the embrace of God, God's self. Instead of reacting out of judgment, we as Element 3 Church must embrace with grace, with love, and most of all, with mercy for all we come into contact with. Amen? Amen. We all have sin. We all need transformation. But to cannot find God, and we cannot experience the fullness of this beatitude unless we embrace in mercy my neighbor and those who are seemingly opposite from me. Otherwise, we end up being that wicked servant. We end up trying to choke out some sort of self-validation of my own authority in a world where I really truly have none. As our worship team comes out, I'm gonna make this next part of this worship experience very interactive. Because friends, mercy is a physical experience, not just theoretical, not just imaginative or existential in my own idea of what this world is about. As our worship team begins playing the song Forgiveness, and I'll pray over this part of the service, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal who you need to write on this little slip of paper, and that you would have the courage to show that piece of paper, and whoever you wrote down on that, mercy, here on this Sunday morning. And be so courageous, you'd be willing to come it up and place it in one of the vases or vases. I don't know why I said vases. I was getting real serious, and I just had to make myself have a little joke there, I guess. One of the vases in front of us, there's one in uh, each section in the middle and both on each sides. It's just to come up as a song plays. And while the song is playing, to have that courage to come up and step forward and place that name in one of these vases. And when you do that, it adds itself as an, almost an offering of saying, I give mercy so I can then receive mercy, God. And to feel free to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit and not by anything you're doing yourself. Because this is between you and God. No one will go through these names and in fact at the end we'll have a very powerful 
an interactive experience of feeling mercy wash over you. So at this time, we'll pray, and I invite you to come up during this song and place those names inside one of these vases. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for being a merciful God, not ones who holds tallies of the wrongs in which I've done, not ones in which he judges those groups I've belonged to, not one in which the takes stock in all the places I have fallen short. No, you are a God who gives mercy. And that mercy is refreshing. It's all-encompassing. And it washes over me moment by moment, day by day, but memorably in a few key amazing moments where it's needed the most. And I pray that that same mercy wash into this room right here, right now. That those who have not written a name yet might just feel inspired, might feel convicted, and may feel refreshed in writing down where they need mercy in their life right now. God, I pray your blessing over all who will write to have the courage to come up and put these in the vases in front of us. And that this part of the service would be one where we reflect on areas we need your mercy. God, we pray your blessing over this time and over the words of this song and those who sing it. Amen. Come.